Revelation chapter 11. We continue our study in the book of Revelation in which John recorded what must soon take place because the time is near. And indeed, within a few years, between two and five years after John writes this book, the events that he writes about, in fact, did take place. And as we've seen that after the letters to the seven churches, the language changes to that of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which is appropriate because what John is writing about are the judgments that are coming on those who have violated the terms of the covenant. But the question, I think, comes up to John's readers. How would the church fare in the face of the judgments God was sending? In the face of the wrath of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb? In the midst of physical judgments and spiritual assaults, how will the church fare? What we will look at today in chapter 11 in many ways mirrors what we saw in chapter 7. First of all, in its placement, uh, in the first series of the first cycle, you have seven, you have between the sixth and the seventh seal, you have chapter seven, in which we read about the church numbered and numberless. Now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, again, we have this interruption uh, which tells us of the church and how God would protect the church. Both chapters have two visions in them. Both of them deal with the church in the midst of suffering. There is a difference, however, and that is in chapter 11, what we will look at today. Uh, I think there's a greater nuance because we will look at the fact that the church, in fact, will suffer um, as a result of persecution. God protects the church, but the church will still suffer. The visions reaffirm what we saw in chapter 7, that nothing will separate us from God's love. But God's love and God's promises do not spare us suffering. And what happens is God, by his grace, keeps us secure in the midst of suffering, but we may still go through suffering. There are two things to keep in mind uh, before we get into this. First of all, that the book of Revelation is about worship. As one writer said, and I've quoted several times, Revelation is a worship service. John did not write a textbook on prophecy. Instead, he recorded a heavenly worship service in progress. One of his major concerns, in fact, is that the worship of God is central to everything in life. It is the most important thing that we do. And as we've seen in the past, even judgments are part of worship because they reflect the justice of God. This is who God is, someone that we can trust, someone who keeps his word. Secondly, and we saw this last week, there are things we are not to know. We saw last Sunday that John uh, heard the seven thunders and he's about to write down what the seven thunders said. And the voice from heaven says, no, don't write down these things. There are things that we are not meant to know. There are things we are meant to know. And these are the things that are recorded in the book of Revelation. Today we look at the first part of chapter 11. We find two visions, as in chapter 7. Uh, In the first, John is given a measuring rod and commanded to measure the temple and count the worshippers. 
And the second, we have the story, the narration of the prophetic careers, assassinations, and resurrections of those whom the voice calls my two witnesses. First of all, let's look at the first two verses here in Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. In this first vision, John is told to measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, the altar of incense, and then the worshippers, that is, that he is to count them. Now, let's look at these one by one. In measuring the temple... Those who know the Old Testament, those familiar with the Old Testament, immediately will remember that in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43, Ezekiel has a very similar vision. There he sees a man who has uh, the appearance like that of bronze, who is told to measure the new temple. Now, what's interesting is in Ezekiel's vision, the temple did not exist because Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Solomon's temple. Now, as John is told to measure the temple, this temple is soon to be destroyed as a result of God's judgment for them breaking the covenant. And so the measuring of the temple doesn't point to a physical building, it points to something else. And in fact, Ezekiel gives us a hint of this in the very last sentence of his book, in Ezekiel 48. And the name of the city from that time on will be, The Lord is There. See it in Emmanuel, God with us. God will be with his people. So the imagery we see here is that of the Old Testament. Um, But we are not limited to the Old Testament sense of, of physical building, even as Ezekiel was not. Because in the New Testament, we find that the new temple refers to the people of God. And let me read to you several passages from Paul's writings, what he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. In second Corinthians, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God. They will be my people. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being fit together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In Peter's first epistle, even though he doesn't use the word temple, certainly the idea, the functions are there. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You may remember what we saw in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. 
which will become even clearer, I think, when we get to chapter 13, in which the beast opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place. That is the temple, the church, and those who live in heaven. So when John is given a reed to measure, this isn't a physical building. This is something that represents, that symbolizes the people of God. The second thing he is to measure is the altar. The altar is in, located inside the holy place, inside the temple. It's separated from the holiest place by the veil. But now that the veil has been torn down, this represents the prayers of God's people. It represents the suffering of God's people. Because they are, the spirits, the souls of the martyrs are under the altar crying out to God, How long, O Lord, until you bring justice? In short, the altar is the suffering church. But there's more. John is told that he is to count the worshippers. And that is, although the church suffers, it continues to continue. Uh, remember in chapter 7, John used the language of the tribes to describe the church numbered, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. But this represents God's people. God knows how many people he has. Here, it's still Old Testament language, but it is that of the temple and those who are worshiping there. And John is to count them because God knows how many people he has. Throughout the book of Revelation, the people of God are seen in the light of worship. Remember the 24 elders represent the 24 divisions of the priesthood uh, in worshiping in the temple. Um, so God's people are seen in the light of worship. But here we have something new, and that is that there is a division. There is a cutting off. Yes, he is to measure the temple. He is to measure the altar. He is to count the people. But he's not to go outside to the courtyard. He is not to, to measure out there. Exclude the outer court, John is told. Do not measure it because it is being given to the Gentiles. A distinction is made between God's people and those who are not God's people. In the Old Testament, uh, different times the prophets are told to measure. And measuring is seen as an act which divides the holy and the profane. Those who are God's people, those who are not God's people. By the way, the word that is used here in the NIV, exclude the outer court, is the same word that we find in the gospel used in three different ways. First of all, of casting out evil spirits. Secondly, to describe what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple, that he cast out those who were buying and selling. And then Jesus uses it to describe to his listeners, to warn them, that they, in fact, might be excluded from the kingdom. This is from Luke. Let me read it to you. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door to us. But he will answer, I don't know who you are or where you came from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know who you are or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. <laughs> 
or in the, the language of the translation here in Revelation, you yourselves excluded. You are not counted among those who are the worshipers of God. And what John sees in his vision is that division, in his vision is a division between those who are God's people, those who are not, between the holy and the profane. And there's a certain irony here because the English word profane actually comes from two Latin words, profanum, which means outside or in front of the temple. And these are people who are outside and John is told, exclude them, don't count them, don't measure them. <clears throat> who are those who are the out, on the outside? The language indicates those who have a connection with Jerusalem. In that we are told the holy city will be trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. And the language again comes from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells his listeners, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's one thing we need to deal with now, sort of get it out of the way, but it's important uh, because we will see it as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation. And that is the issue of the 42 months. Um, in verses 3 and 6, we will see it given as uh, 1260 days. Three and a half years. Now, the idea of the three and a half years comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. I do not believe it is to be taken literally. I think it points to something that is important for us to know. First of all, it points to a limited amount of time. So it's not that sort of this endless, ongoing uh, type of deal. There is a specific, it is limited as to what will happen. Secondly, it, re it points to a time of judgment and wrath because of apostasy. Those who have turned away from God, God will bring judgment on them. And the reminder, those of you, again, who are familiar with the Old Testament, when Israel, the kingdom to the north, when they went into apostasy, they began to worship Baal. What happened? God, through Elijah, caused it not to rain for three and a half years. So there is this idea that it is a time of judgment and a time of wrath. In the book of Revelation, I don't think it is to be taken literally. I think what it represents is a broken seven. We've seen that seven represents uh, completeness, perfection. So we have, for example, the Holy Spirit referred to as the seven spirits of God. The NIV has the sevenfold spirit. Seven is perfection. It is completeness. Three and a half is seven broken. There is no completeness there. There is no perfection. What, in fact, we find is death, destruction, and sadness. And we will see this time and time again through the rest of the book of Revelation. Um, people have made a big deal that it's the seven years and it's halfway and, and it's all that. No, it is a broken seven. It is perfection that has been damaged and destroyed. It is a time of judgment. And so we should see any variation, and in fact, there are a number of variations on this, as representing brokenness. And so the judgment that comes on the holy city for 42 months, the Gentiles will trample on the holy city. It is the result of apostasy, but it is only for a limited period of time. It is a time of sadness, death, and destruction. That's the first vision. Now we come to the second vision, which deals with the two witnesses. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 3 through 12. 
And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Before the Gentiles will trample on Jerusalem, there will be two witnesses. And there's so much here. And we can't cover it all, but I will try to hit the high points. <clears throat> First of all, the fact that there are two witnesses is important from Old Testament law. Because... The law, as Moses gave it, a person could not be convicted on the testimony of one person. You had to have two witnesses. And we have, in fact, the saying in the Old Testament, in the mouth of two witnesses, let the truth be established. That is, if two witnesses say the same thing, then that is the truth. And so the fact that we have two witnesses, I think, is important. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about these two figures, but I think it would be helpful for us to begin with their work. After all, that's what the Lord does when he's speaking to John. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, closed in sackcloth. The work of the witnesses is to preach. They do so for a limited period of time. And while they do this, they do this in the clothing of mourning, sackcloth. But you might be thinking, wait a minute, the 1260 days, those who follow the lunar calendar, you know, 30 days a month, that's 42 months. But didn't I say that 42 is the number of judgment, of destruction, uh, etc.? Yes, but the point is this, that God in his judgment is still merciful and he provides the opportunity for people to repent. And he does so by sending his witnesses, and notice the language of these are my witnesses, to present themselves visually in mourning to God's people and to call people, the people of Israel, to repentance. Who are these two witnesses? Well, the Lord tells John that they are the two olive trees, the two lampstands which stand before the Lord on the earth. The imagery is Old Testament, straight from Zechariah chapter 4, in which Zechariah has a vision. And there, Zechariah sees these two figures, the two olive trees, the two lampstands. And in Zechariah's vision, they represent Zerubbabel, the king, and Joshua, the priest. These two men are to build the temple of God. Now, 
I don't think that's what's going on here. They're not the same two men. I do think it is interesting, though, that one is a king and one is a priest. We have the royal priesthood, as the church has described. Um, But it's something else from Zechariah 4. God said to Zechariah, you tell Zerubbabel, you tell Joshua, that the work that they've started, they are now to finish. And then we have words that may be very familiar to you, but you don't know the context. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. It is by the power of God that the two witnesses speak. And the preaching of these two men who are dressed in the cloth, the clothing of mourning, will not be there in their own strength or power. It will be God's work that is done through them. They are empowered by the Lord God Almighty. And it's seen in verse number five that if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth, their mouths and devours their enemies. Now, from this description of what follows, the two witnesses seem to be very clearly Moses and Elijah. So, for example, fire comes from their mouth. In the book of Numbers, chapter 16, uh, Moses speaks the word and fire comes down and devours the false prophets who had rebelled against him. In 2 Kings chapter 1, I think one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, well, I have many, but it's, I don't know if you know the story, but uh, the king of Judah sends somebody to get Elijah because the king of Judah had been injured and instead of going to the prophet of God, he goes to a false prophet. And he hears that Elijah is around and so he sends a captain with 50 men. And Elijah is sitting on top of a hill and the captain with the 50 men come and they say, Man of God, the king says for you to come down. And Elijah says, well, you know, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. They're toast. I mean, the, the captain and the 50 men. Well, the king hears about this. He sends another captain with 50 men. And the man does the same thing. Man of God, come down here. The king wants to see you. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven. Again, they're toast. The king sends a third captain with 50 men. This guy comes on his knees and says, please have mercy on us. Don't don't burn us up with fire. The king wants to see you. And Elijah went with him. But in both cases, we have men in the Old Testament who speak and fire comes down, not from their mouths. They speak the words, but fire comes down and destroys their enemies. They have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. This is Elijah in the Old Testament. It did not rain for three and a half years. They have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. This is the story of Moses from the book of Exodus. These two figures we find put together in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. In the book of Malachi, toward the very, very end of the Old Testament, God says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. On the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, recorded in Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, they go up, And suddenly he is transfigured. His face uh, was shone like the sun. His clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. 
These two men represent the law and the prophets, the sum total of the Old Testament. Moses gave the law. Elijah was one of the first of the prophets that led the prophetic office. They are the witness of the Old Testament. And one could make the case that Jesus is Moses and Elijah together. He is the sum total of the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the law. So this is this part of the story I think we like. This is wonderful. God has empowered his witnesses and they speak and fire comes down and they speak and it doesn't rain and they are able to do all these things. But then something happens. The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack, will overpower, will kill the two witnesses. Now, let me just tell you parenthetically, this is the first time we've heard about the beast. We will hear a lot more about him as we go along. We have heard about the abyss. That's where the destroyer is king. That's where the demons came from. So I think we have a pretty good sense that the beast is not a good guy. Okay. If he comes from the abyss, then he is something that is satanic. I think it is enough for us to know that he is the enemy of God and of God's people. And we see it in this. He kills the two witnesses. This is not what we expected. Because in verse number five, we are told that if anyone tries to harm them, they speak and fire comes from their mouths. And then suddenly the beast comes and kills them. It's not what we expect. Again, the language is not literal and it shouldn't be seen. What we see with regard to their their deaths, their, their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is called figuratively Sodom and Egypt. The city is, is Jerusalem, because we are told this is where their Lord was also crucified. So it is Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem who will kill these two witnesses. And for three and a half days, again, a brokenness, a broken seven, their bodies will be left in the street. Now, in the Old Testament, when somebody dies, they have to be buried by sunset. If they're not, a curse is on them. And the fact that they leave their bodies out for three and a half days shows the disregard, the sort of the curse that they put on these two witnesses. They will be viewed by people from every tribe, language, and nation. Again, go back to the book of Acts. This is the language of the day of Pentecost. When the apostles preached, there were people from every tribe, language, and nation. People will gloat over them, will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. In other words, the way to get peace, because these guys are causing trouble, the way to get peace is to get rid of the witness, get rid of the witnesses. And the witnesses represent scripture. And the scripture troubles. And so when the scripture says you need to repent, we don't want to hear that. Let's kill the scripture. That, I think, is what John sees in his vision. And those who normally don't get along, those who are naturally enemies, suddenly become friends as they work together to get rid of the witnesses. Think of Herod and Pilate. We read that they were enemies before. But then when it came time for the trials of Jesus, suddenly they became friends again. Or think of the religious leaders of, of Judaism at that point. The Romans, I mean, they hated each other, but they worked together, they conspired together, they cooperated together to put Jesus to death. 
What we see in this vision is not merely the putting to death of individuals, though certainly the Jews did that. It is an attempt to abolish the testimony of the covenant. Stephen, before he was put to death by the Supreme Court of the Jews, said, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When you do not obey the law, in essence, you kill the law. It, has, it means nothing to me. It has no effect on me. But this time of rejoicing is limited for three and a half days. Then God raises these men. The breath of life from God enters them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And then what happened to John at the beginning of chapter 4 happens to these men. There's a voice that says, come up here, and they are taken up into heaven. Now, I think what is being conveyed in this part of the vision is not about the resurrection at the end of time. I think what is being conveyed is, first of all, they died. I think that is incredibly important, that they are put to death. But in Christ's resurrection, they rose to power and dominion. Not by might, nor by power, but by God's Spirit. And then in verses 13 and 14, we have the aftermath. And this is where we will close today. Verse 13, at that time, uh, sorry, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tent of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This verse is difficult, I think, to understand. I would say it is almost impossible to understand, again, unless we look at the Old Testament. When the two witnesses are taken into heaven, there is an earthquake. One-tenth of the city collapses, 7,000 people are killed, the survivors are terrified and give glory to God. What can this possibly mean? Well, what it is, in fact, is sort of the reverse of what we find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, one-tenth is used for what will remain. One-tenth, the tithe. God says, I'm going to judge my people, and only one-tenth will survive. It's the tithe, God's tithe. Only one-tenth will survive. Let me read to you from Amos chapter 5. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. Only Ten percent, only one-tenth will survive. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has his vision in the temple and he's commissioned, and he asks God, well, okay, how long am I supposed to preach? Until the cities lie ruined and without ha- inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. One-tenth, the survivors, that's it. What about the 7,000? Again, we go back to the story of Elijah. Elijah is praying to God and he says, I'm the only one who's remained faithful to you. Poor me. I'm being persecuted. I'm the only one that has survived. 
And God says, no, actually not. I have 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have 7,000 people who have remained faithful. So in the Old Testament, one-tenth survived, 7,000 are faithful. In Revelation, it is the reverse. One-tenth are destroyed, 7,000 are put to death, and the rest turn in repentance to God. They are terrified and they give glory to God. That is, they are converted. This is the language of conversion. And what we find in this vision is judgment that leads to salvation. Judgment that leads to repentance. This is what we find in the church. And what we find in this vision is that the church will continue to continue. Yes, we have the seven seals. We've had six trumpets, the two woes. The third one is yet to come. We have more yet to come, but the church will continue. And I think that's why we have this at this point in the book of Revelation to encourage us. I think that these two visions are intended to show the believer that God will preserve his people even in the midst of judgment. But it doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean that we will not be put to death. And indeed, church history is red with the blood of the martyrs, those who have been put to death for their faith in Christ. I suspect that we like the first part of the vision about the two witnesses. The being able to devour their enemies with fire. Having the power to shut up the sky so that it doesn't rain. Being able to turn water to blood and being able to bring down any type of plague that we want. Because if we had these abilities, it would show that we have the power of God. And then maybe people might be convinced. Maybe they might be converted. If somehow I could show people I have the power of the Lord God Almighty. Remember, it's not in my own strength. It's not by my own power. It's by the Spirit of God. And boy, if I could do this, then, then people would know that the gospel is true. But that's not the end of the vision. The two witnesses are put to death. They are humiliated after they are, they are put to death. And people rejoice over their deaths. It's like Christmas. People are sending each other gifts. Yes. I don't think we like that part of the vision as much. But it is important. It is part of it. There may be suffering for John's readers, and they need to be prepared. One writer puts it so well, and let me read to you. He says, We are not the lords of history and do not control its outcome. But we have assurance that there is a lord of history, and he controls its outcome. We need a theological interpretation of disaster. One that recognizes that God acts in such events as captivities, defeats, and crucifixions. And I love this last sentence. The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. That is, we see disasters and we think, oh, it's, it's the end of the world. You know, I, th- I, I thought that God gave these, these witnesses the power to do things. Oh, it's a disaster. Think of Christ. He's on the cross. I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was going to save his people. What we see as a disaster 
is in fact God's triumph. We just need to look at it in the right light. And John's readers need to know that they may in fact be like the two witnesses. They may be put to death. People may celebrate their deaths. But the church will continue. John measures, John counts. The church continues. Numbered and numberless, the church continues. But as the writer says, we need a theology or a theological interpretation of disaster. What we see as the end of the world may in fact be God's triumph. John is writing to the people of his generation. They are either going to personally face what he talks about or the consequences will come home to them. Terrible things, disastrous things. But John wants them to know that God is in control. God will take care of them. But it doesn't mean a hassle-free life. It doesn't mean an easy life. In fact, it may even mean death. But there is a Lord of history. He controls its outcome. And he is the one whom we worship. Our faith is to be in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for what is recorded here in Revelation 11. And if we would but take the time and think through and meditate, we would see the truth of it. Even as we look back on our lives at certain events that at the time seemed disastrous. Just the worst thing that could possibly happen. Now as time has gone by in your grace, you have shown us that you had a purpose in it. When we look at your word and we see the various disasters, we're then reminded of how you were able to turn them into triumph. We are human. More than that, we are children of this age. We want easy and comfortable lives. Sometimes we think this is our right as your children, that this is something you have promised us. I thank you for this, what John has written, these two visions, and how it shows us that you do care for us, but we may suffer. In the end, you will triumph. And we give thanks for the victory that is there in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that we could meet together today to worship, to worship you. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please and get your hymnals out and turn to hymn number 31, which we sang earlier. But this time we will sing the doxology, which is in italics at the bottom.
benediction is Paul's doxology in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.